All right, Nick. So, um, you know, I feel like as I'm getting to the end of my fellowship, I still feel like I need to go back and remind myself about all of the general OBGYN topics as well as some primary care stuff. So how do I do that? Yeah. You know, our friends at the OBG Project actually have a new sister website that's come out called the PC Med Project or the Primary Care Med Project um, that focuses in on a lot of things from medicine that we may have forgotten and probably that our family medicine and internal medicine listeners completely remember, but they just need a better resource to be able to get those bullet-pointed summaries. Yeah, as I'm looking through this website, I see a ton of great information. It looks like they've also broken this down into specialty areas, so not just your normal alerts and things like that, but also looking at review of cancer screening, if you need to like look at some endocrine topics, even some dermatology topics. This is really great for anyone who wants to review some of your basic primary care subjects. So definitely check out the PC Med Project at pcmedproject.com. But if you're an OBGYN resident, remember too that you can get the OBG Project and OBG First as well as that resident core curriculum absolutely free heading to our website at www.creagsovercoffee.com, checking out our sidebar and getting signed up. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Nick. This is Faye. And this is... Kriyas Over Coffee. Coffee. All right, so Faye, we're going to tackle a really exciting topic today. Um, Or maybe not so exciting, I don't know. But it's the world of constipation. It's at least super common and hopefully really useful to talk about. Yeah, so today we're going to, you know, like you said, define constipation and chronic constipation. We're going to describe the evaluation of a patient who has constipation. And then finally, we'll understand the treatment options for constipation. And hopefully, this will convince you to uh, prescribe more than just some colase for your patients. (laughs) So, Nick, um, let's start off, you know, let's define this. So, what is constipation? (laughs) I guess it sounds kind of like a silly question because I feel intrinsically we all know what constipation is, right? Um, But it's infrequent and difficult defecation. Um, Formally, in medical literature, constipation gets defined as three or fewer bowel movements per week. Um, But that doesn't seem to be a very all-encompassing definition, admittedly. Um, There's a lot more to it. And so there's a lot of discussion about chronic constipation, which does have some different uh, diagnostic criteria that we'll get into. But it's quite prevalent. You know, chronic constipation in North America, the prevalence is estimated to be about 15% of the population experiencing this. And it's more prevalent in females than in those over the age of 65. But as we know, as pregnancy docs, um, pregnancy is another super common time for constipation to occur due to that progesterone and GI motility slowing. Before we get into too deep a discussion on stool, um, one of the things that I wanted to make mention of today was something we're going to talk about in the podcast, but obviously can't show you, um, except if you check out the website, is this Bristol stool chart. Um, This goes from type 1 to type 7, from the most severe constipation with 
separate hard lumpy stools all the way down to severe diarrhea that's liquid consistency without any solids in it. Um, a lot of the diagnoses and considerations surrounding constipation, diarrhea, and irritable bowel syndrome use the Bristol stool chart, so it's worth reviewing. And I imagine probably the last time many of us really looked at this at all was in medical school when we were in a medicine clinic or a GI clinic. So again, we'll have it on the website, um, and we're going to refer to it throughout the podcast today, so just make sure you take a look. Faye, one of the things that I think was really enlightening as we did the background for this episode is that there are actual criteria um, for chronic constipation that are pretty specific. Yeah, so this actual criteria is known as the Rome 4 criteria. And so functional constipation must be three months with uh, loose stools, rarely present without the use of laxatives. Um, if they have insufficient criteria to diagnose actually irritable bowel syndrome or IBS, and then two or more of the following, which include straining during more than 25% of defecations, uh, lumpy or hard stools, so like a Bristol scale one to two in more than 25% of defecations, sensation of incomplete evacuation for more than 25% of defecations, um, sensation of anal rectal obstruction or blockage for more than 25% of defecations, manual maneuvers to facilitate more than 25% of defecations like splinting or digital evacuation, and then fewer than three spontaneous bowel movements per week. So that's a lot of things that could basically give you the diagnosis of functional constipation. And certainly we can ask our patients more specifically about these criteria. And then in terms, of in terms of causes of constipation, there are three broad categories. So this uh, breaks down into normal transit constipation, which includes functional chronic constipation and IBS. There's slow transit constipation, which can be due to a variety of factors, things like um, medications that can slow colonic transit, so things like opioids, for example, or there can be things like medical disorders or conditions such as different systemic or neuromuscular diseases, so things like severe diabetes, which can cause things like gastroparesis, um, anorexia nervosa, and of course pregnancy like you talked about, Nick, right, with the progesterone, um, or diseases of the colon like colorectal cancer and Hirschsprung's disease. And then the last broad category is pelvic floor disorders, like a pelvic floor dysfunction after an injury or trauma or pelvic organ prolapse. And so the reason we're talking about all of this is that, you know, even though constipation is not usually a life-threatening issue, it certainly is a major quality of life issue, as I'm sure all of us know, mm -hmm. um, who may have had a little while of constipation here and there. You don't feel really great. And of course, we know that, you know, severe constipation that is not treated can lead to things like colonic dilation and ultimately perforation, which can actually be life-threatening. So Nick, walk me through how you would approach a patient who has constipation. They come to you, they say, hey doc, you know, I have really bad constipation. Can you help me? What are some of the things that you would ask them? So I think kind of we always start with history, right? Um, and with constipation, history is really, really important to be able to identify what the problem might be. So you're going to get a sense of the problem, as Faye talked about, those Rome 4 criteria to kind of see if meet the conditions for chronic constipation. And then also you're looking to evaluate for any major red flags that'll tip you off to a criteria or alert you to something more significant. So one of the kind of big flags to look for are obviously medications that can slow colonic transit. Um, common meds that slow transit, obviously we know about opioids and slowing 
transit, but there are also a lot of other ones. So antihistamines are notorious for slowing transit. Certain antidepressants and antipsychotics can cause constipation. Um, probably also very familiar to you, but in the same mechanism, iron supplements. Aluminum-based antacids can also cause constipation. The serotonin antagonist medications, and probably the most common ones in our life, are things like Ondansetron, also known as Zofran. Um, and then there are also some antihypertensives, particularly the calcium channel blockers like nifedipine and amlodipine can also be implicated in constipation. So um, again, a whole host of meds, and there's lists and lists online of certain ones to kind of make sure that you're taking a look at and seeing if you can de-prescribe or look for alternatives prescriptions to, to help with that. Then you want to know about any major red flags for colon cancer. And I know in our pregnant population, this is probably much, much less common than an older population, but is definitely worth asking about. So certainly the presence of hematochesia um, or melana or the positive fetal occult blood tests would certainly tip us off. The blood in the stool is worrisome no matter when or where. Um, a weight loss that's unintentional of 10 pounds or more is certainly concerning too. Patients who have a strong family history of colon cancer or a family history of inflammatory bowel disease also would be at risk. And then in any adults, particularly older adults with a acute onset of constipation, that should be potentially worrisome again for, for colon cancer. And then finally, you're thinking about other medical conditions in your history that can contribute to constipation. And really, a lot of this depends on the patient's age and their medical status. So, you know, we've mentioned a few earlier things like diabetes mellitus causing neuropathy or other neuropathic disorders in that realm. Um, multiple sclerosis and Parkinson's disease can also cause constipation, spinal cord injuries, hypothyroidism pregnancy. Another pregnancy-related one, panhypopituitarism. So again, a lack of pituitary hormones, so something that might occur with like Sheehan syndrome after postpartum hemorrhage, if that rings a bell for anybody. And then finally, you know, Faye mentioned earlier that one of the criteria for functional constipation was ruling out irritable bowel syndrome. Um, and IBS, kind of in terms of what is the difference IBS specifically encompasses recurring abdominal pain that is associated with changes in stool. So chronic constipation doesn't necessarily have abdominal pain that's part of the criteria, but IBS does, and it's a really important part of the criteria. The Rome 4 criteria also apply to IBS. So Rome 4 for IBS is having one or more day per week of recurrent abdominal pain for at least three months, along with two or more of the following symptoms pain related to defecation, whether it increases the pain or relieves the pain. The pain is associated with some sort of change in stool frequency, um, and then also the pain associated with change in stool form, i.e. its appearance on the Bristol scale. And again, IBS can be related to either constipation or diarrhea, or it can be alternating between the two. Um, so again, kind of the pain is really the differentiator in terms of functional constipation versus IBS. Okay, I think that covers history, Faye. Um, what other things do we need to think about? Yeah, so, you know, um, the other thing that we tend to do with our patients is a physical exam. But unfortunately, a lot of times in most patients who have constipation, um, a general physical exam is not really that helpful. 
Sometimes, depending on what the patient tells you, you can consider a pelvic and rectal exam that can be useful in those with chronic constipation. So, you know, they you can identify evidence of chronic constipation, things like skin tags, fissures, hemorrhoids, or even a fistula near the anus. Um, and you can evaluate for things like prolapse and pelvic floor dysfunction if patients are complaining of those types of things. So you can inspect the anus, you can ask the patient to push down or squeeze like they're holding a bowel movement to look for contraction of the sphincter and the gluteal muscles. You can check for the anal wink reflex to make sure that the sacral nerves are intact. And then sometimes even a digital rectal exam to assess rectal tone, tenderness, and relaxation when the finger is expelled. But really, like I said, you know, the physical exam is not always super helpful. And in most patients with a new complaint of constipation and really no other red flag symptoms, you can actually just try some laxatives um, to start off with. And this is appropriate. And, you know, we're going to talk about um, the laxatives and treatments later on. But if your patients need some additional testing, the other things to consider, and you know, probably in conjunction with our GI colleagues, is to think about something like anal rectal manometry, which is a probe with sensors that goes into the rectum to measure rectal and anal pressure, and the gradient with evacuation and squeeze. Um, similar in principle in this case to things like urodynamics, which we may be a little bit more familiar, familiar with on our urogynecology rotations. Um, and the anal manometry can also be accompanied with various tests like the balloon expulsion test or balloon rectal sensitivity test, which can provide additional information. Other tests include things like defecography, which is a radio contrast study to evaluate what occurs during evacuation of rectal content to look for signs of prolapse or obstruction. And then there's also the SITS marker study or nuclear medicine scint scintigraphy, which is where radio opaque markers or tracers are swallowed, and then radiographs are taken at certain intervals to evaluate transit within the bowel and the colon to evaluate if there's actually slow transit. All right, so let's say, you know, we have a patient, they come to us, they have a new a complaint of constipation. We don't think that there's any red flags and we don't need to do uh, all these additional physical exams and other tests. Let's talk about treating constipation, Nick. So what are some of the things that we can do to help our patients if they have constipation? Yeah. So really one of the challenges I think for us and for our patients is that there's loads of treatment options for constipation. Um, and so for us to like list the name of a drug or a supplement and then talk about it just would take us forever. So we're going to instead break these down by their mechanism of action um, and sort of the way that we approach this. So the first that I think many folks talk about and that you hear about is fiber, but we don't always talk about fiber in the right way. It is the first line treatment but specifically soluble fibers are recommended for the treatment of constipation. And these are things like beans, psyllium, oat brands, and barley. So what's the difference between soluble and insoluble fiber? Soluble fiber attracts water to the stool, and then that fiber actually turns into a gel-like substance during digestion. So basically it softens the stool um, and actually in a way sort of slows down digestion. It's also helpful for folks who have diabetes and other things. These are the fibers that kind of can help keep you fuller longer in some ways. On the other hand, insoluble fibers, so these are found in things like wheat bran, vegetables, and whole grains, 
These add bulk to the stool um, and actually help food to pass more quickly. So may not be the most helpful with respect to constipation. Again, the soluble fibers are generally preferred and these are what are sold over the counter as supplements. So for instance, psyllium that I mentioned earlier, brand names for that include Metamucil and then a similar compound is known as Benefiber. Soluble fibers have a disadvantage, though, of increasing gas production. And so in those with IBS, slow transit constipation, or concerns for just flatulence, frankly, um, it can be difficult to encourage compliance with these. This can be modulated by really starting with small, small amounts of the soluble fiber and slowly up titrating them with a goal ultimately of 25 grams or more a day of fibers for women and 35 grams per day for men. All right. Um, what about sort of the more traditional laxatives, Faye? Sure. So the more traditional laxatives we can break down into osmotic laxatives and stimulant laxatives. So osmotic laxatives act as hyperosmolar solutions that are not systemically absorbed and so add water into the stool to increase stool frequency. So examples of this are things like polyethylene glycol. So, you know, trade names are things like Golightly and Miralax. Uh, there's lactulose, sorbitol, milk of magnesia, magnesium citrate. These are pretty effective and titratable um, to effect. So for example, if someone is saying, I am taking one scoop of Miralax a day, it's not doing much, you can add a second scoop that day. Um, excess use in patients with renal and cardiac dysfunction, however, can lead to electrolyte abnormalities because you are pulling water into their colon, into their stool. The stimulant laxatives, so these actually alter electrolyte transport mechanisms in the intestinal mucosa, and this will increase the motor activity of the intestine, so actually like push the stool through. And so the examples of these are things like bicyclotal or dulcolax, senna, sodium bicosulfate. Um, overall, these are generally very well tolerated, and you can add these on to an osmotic laxative if a patient still needs something else to help them um, for constipation, but sometimes these medications can produce abdominal discomfort because of the irritation effect on the intestines. And some of these can be associated with things like developing hypokalemia, salt depletion, and significant enteric protein wasting. So they're not encouraged to be used chronically overall. Um, some folks also can develop some tolerance to these medications, so it's not encouraged to be used chronically so that the tolerance doesn't develop, where you know then they can't go to the bathroom at all if you are not giving them these medications. All right, so um, we talked about you know some of the laxatives. What are some other things that we can try, Nick, if you know patients still need more treatment on top of these more traditional medications? Sure. So one of the probably most important and overlooked areas is kind of biofeedback and pelvic floor therapy, particularly in patients who have pelvic floor dysfunction that is a concern. So of course, pelvic floor PT, biofeedback training, pelvic floor therapy, um, and evaluation by colorectal surgeons or urogynecologists are all effective tools, especially if patients have symptomatic rectocele um, or symptomatic pelvic floor dysfunction. Some of the other things that you can do that are inexpensive include things like the Squatty Potty, um, not the brand name, that's just literally what these things are called. Um, and what those do basically is encourage puborectalis muscle and sphincter relaxation um, by elevating the legs upward as well as that muscle. Another exciting or maybe not so exciting item to talk about with this are suppositories, enemas, and disimpaction. 
Bisacodal suppositories are very easy to use. And if you're getting to the point with severe constipation where you're thinking about that are often the first line things to do from the other end. These effectively liquefy stool and can clear impaction pretty well in the rectum. There are tons and tons of different enemas that exist. If you look into this, you'll see no descriptions of tap water enemas, mineral oil enemas, soap suds, phosphates, milk and molasses enemas. Shout out to Women in Infants Hospital in Brown there. Um, <laughs> it's most important when you're choosing an enema, not that necessarily one is more effective than the other, but really it's important to focus on the potential side effects. So for instance, Fleet's enemas, which are the, the phosphate enemas, can lead to hyperphosphatemia, particularly in patients with kidney disease, and so should be avoided in the, that particular population. Finally, manual disimpaction. Um, this is never fun. This is an intern challenge. Um, and really, it's one of these things that you have to do at some point, but you never get like a lot of guidance on the best method of doing it. And there's not really a lot of evidence-based methods out there in terms of doing this. But generally speaking, you're just breaking stool up with a well-lubricated finger and attempting to extract it until the hardened stool is cleared. Um, there is best practice, though, that you should follow up a manual disimpaction with a mineral oil enema or a milk and molasses enema. These two will soften stool and provide lots of lubrication to help make stool passage more comfortable after what can potentially be a traumatic um, experience of the disimpaction. If your disimpaction is not successful, the next thing that you really should consider is a water-soluble contrast enema um, with fluoroscopy. And the reason for that is that you're looking at that point to evaluate for just a GI obstruction that's more proximal. Um, sometimes even GI needs to get consulted in these scenarios for flex sig or rigid sig to help evacuate stool and potentially to look for you no know, reasons like colorectal cancer that might be causing obstruction down the way. All right, Faye, um, I'm going to hand this over to you because I'm going to go off on a tear if I start talking about this. <laughs> um, but some folks may be hearing us right now and saying that we didn't mention docusates um, as one of the potential laxatives. So why did we not mention this? Yeah, well, you know, Nick, you did a great grand rounds about this actually during residency. But what we've learned from multiple, multiple studies is that docusate or colase doesn't actually work. Um, so there was an article in 2019 from the Journal of Hospital Medicine um, called Things We Do for No Reason, Prescribing Colase for Constipation in Hospitalized Adults, where basically we, you know, we potentially spend over $100 million on colase annually across North America in hospitalized populations. And there have been multiple negative studies in randomized trials showing that colase actually does not improve or prevent constipation compared to placebo. And so because of all of these studies, you know, it does seem that colase by itself, at least, is not super effective in helping hospitalized patients with their constipation. And so really, we should recommend de-implementing it from order sets and hospital formularies and potentially reach for some of the other treatment options that we talked about before. All right. So, Nick, um, I think that brings us to the end of this episode. So why don't we go ahead and summarize? Absolutely. So first, 
we talked about what is constipation, formally diagnosed as three or fewer bowel movements per week. And that has um, some limitations, obviously. So chronic constipation or functional constipation using the Rome 4 criteria is present for three months with rare loose stools without use of laxatives, insufficient criteria to diagnose IBS, and then a number of symptoms, at least two of five symptoms that, again, we'll have listed on the website that really are just related to either difficulty with defecation or kind of hard defecation as demonstrated on a Bristol school stool scale type one or two. In terms of causes, there are three broad categories that we talked about. So there's normal transit constipation, slow transit constipation, and also things like pelvic floor disorders. And we know while constipation is not usually a life-threatening issue, it certainly is a major quality of life issue. When you're approaching the patient with constipation, probably the most important thing that you can do is start with a history. Get a sense of the problem and evaluate for the presence of any things that would tip you off or potentially be red flags. So certainly chat about medications that may slow colonic transit. Remember things like opioids, antihistamines, certain antidepressants and antipsychotics, supplements like iron or aluminum-based antacids, and some serotonin antagonists and calcium channel blockers can be implicated amongst other medications. The red flags for colon cancer include any form of blood in the stool, a weight loss of 10 pounds or more, patient with family history of colon cancer, inflammatory bowel disease, or acute onset of constipation, particularly in older adults. There are also multiple medical conditions that can contribute to constipation like diabetes, multiple sclerosis, pregnancy, um, and irritable bowel syndrome, which again, really the diagnosis of IBS compared to chronic constipation, the difference is in that abdominal pain related to defecation. And while a physical exam is not necessarily indicated in most patients with new onset constipation, sometimes depending on the history, a physical exam can be helpful where you can identify evidence of chronic constipation and also evaluate for things like prolapse and pelvic floor dysfunction. And then while in most patients, you can certainly just start them off with some type of treatment, there are patients where if they're giving you certain red flag symptoms, we can talk to them about other testing like anorectal manometry, defecography, or SITS marker study, or nuclear medicine scintigraphy. In terms of treating constipation, again, there are loads of treatment options. The first line treatment is fiber, specifically soluble fiber. These attract water to the stool and ultimately turn into a gel-like substance to help soften it. Insoluble fibers, on the other hand, add bulk to the stool and help food to pass more quickly. Soluble fibers are the things that you're going to find over the counter. They have disadvantages in that they can increase gas production and flatulence. The recommended intake is 25 grams per day for women, 35 grams per day for men. We can also prescribe both osmotic laxatives and stimulant laxatives. Osmotic laxatives are those medications that pull water into the stool, and these include things like polyethylene glycol, lactulose, etc. Stimulant laxatives, on the other hand, will alternate will alter electrolyte transport mechanisms and increase the motor activity of the intestines. These include things like bisocotyl, senna, sodium picosulfate. People can develop a tolerance to stimulant laxatives, and so they're not encouraged to be used chronically. 
Other options include biofeedback and pelvic floor treatment. Again, doing things that can help evaluate for symptomatic rectocele and correct that, um, or using things like a squatty potty to encourage puborectalis muscle and sphincter relaxation. With suppositories, enemas, and disimpaction, bisacodal suppositories can be considered first. Um, various enemas exist, but focus on the side effects of the enema that you're using or the unintended consequences, for instance, fleets enemas and hyperphosphatemia. And then manual disimpaction is never fun. Again, follow it up with a lubricating enema to help soften stool and provide lubrication. And last but not least, remember that colase doesn't really work and we should probably considering not putting it as a first-line treatment in the hospital or for outpatients and think about using some of these other methods. Wonderful. All right, Faye. Well, I think that does it today for constipation. Once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Kriags Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed this episode or any of our other episodes, go ahead and go into your favorite podcatcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play. Give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us online on Twitter at Kriags Over Coffee 1, on Instagram and Facebook at Kriags Over Coffee. Or if you love the show and want to support us, head over to patreon.com slash Over Coffee. Send us some love and we'll send you some swag. For show notes for this show and all of our other episodes, including the Bristol stool chart, as well as the Rosh Review question of the week, go ahead and go onto our website, www.cruxovercoffee.com. And finally, if you have a question for us, a correction to this or any of our prior episodes, or just want to say hi, email us, cruxovercoffee at gmail.com. <laughs>